Hi there. Thank you for choosing to listen to this sermon. We pray that God would use this as an added resource to benefit you in conjunction with you belonging to a local church near you. This sermon was preached at Central Baptist Church Pretoria. 130 years of believers loving God, caring for one another and impacting the world. Indeed. Our Lord Jesus Christ is risen to reign. And we behold him. We behold our God seated on the throne. The throne of our heart now, but in eternity to come, we will behold him forever and ever and worship him as king of kings and lord of lords, our God Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior. What a mighty God we serve. Friends, as we come to the reading of scripture, let me tell you what scripture we're going to be reading. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. You can actually turn in there now in your Bibles. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Let me remind you what we are doing here this morning. We are not yet to engage in an academic exercise of big words and long terms that you can impress your family and friends with over bras. Now we yet to experience heart change. And we yeah, by the power of God, to experience life transformation. That is not an academic, that's not even a logical exercise. That's a spiritual exercise. God has to do something in your heart, Walter, and in your heart, Conrad, on the other side, in our hearts collectively. He has to speak to us, make us alive, make us see Jesus that we might worship him. And so to that end, even as we come to the high point of our worship service, the reading of God's word and the preaching, the proclamation of God's word, it's right that we bow our heads and ask God to do what only God can do. Change our hearts, transform our lives, and be glorified in and through us. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Indeed, Father God, I'm reminded that your word says... That all men are like grass and their glories are like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers they fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Oh Lord, on your word we now stand, help us to be faithful. Your word we believe that it is without error and sufficient for all matters of godliness and for life. Help us, Lord, to be conformed to your will as we find it in these pages. Help us to see Jesus. Help us to enthrone him in our hearts as King of kings and Lord of lords. Be glorified in this place this morning, we, your people, pray. We ask this in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. And in the power of his spirit and to the glory of our Father who is in heaven. Amen. I trust you found 2 Corinthians chapter 11, so it's not a big distraction when I start reading from it. But let me start first with a story. Um, It's a story that comes from history. In fact, this isn't a story, this is just a historical reality. In the fourth century, the Christian world faced turmoil. A heresy had emerged regarding the deity of Jesus Christ. That means the divinity of Jesus 
Christ. On the one side of the debate was the villain. His name was Arius. He was a distinguished churchman and a scholar. On the other side of the debate was our hero, a man named Athanasius, who this morning, when I sent my sermon notes out, Stanley quickly came back and told me was known as the Black Dwarf. Um, It turns out that Athanasius was an African man, and it turns out, praise the Lord, he was short. (laughs) Just like me, I love short people in history. Athanasius, our hero, was a brilliant theologian. And the question that history asks us is, could Athanasius hold fast to the gospel in the face of deception. At one stage, it looked like he wouldn't. Controversy threatened the political stability of the whole Roman Empire. And so the emperor, Constantine, convened and presided over a council called Nicaea. Now out of that council came a great creed, which we call the Nicene Creed, which is really an affirmation of the Anastasian position. Now, while the Council of Nicaea ended in victory for Athanasius, the debate raged on. Athanasius was known as the defender of the face and of the face. Not the face. No, 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 that's wrong. The defender of the faith, and he faced very real challenges. At the Council of Arminium, it was all but reversed what the Council of Nicaea had won. Over time, the Arian heresy began to gain traction, and the Athanasian majority began to wane toward minority position in Christendom. Emperor Constantine himself leaned toward Arianism, this heresy toward the end of his life. And his son, who took over the empire from him, Emperor Constantus, was openly Arian. Athanasius was the target of his opponents, the target of the opponents to the Nicene Creed. Emperors turned against him. Bishops turned against him. On five occasions, he was banished from the city of Alexandria. It seemed, at point, as if Arianism could win. Yet, despite opposition, Athanasius stood resolute. The purity of the gospel was at stake. The defender of the true gospel bolstered the front lines of the theological debate and with unwavering zeal and divine conviction, Athanasius wrote and proclaimed the truth relentlessly. His battle cry was, Christ is not a creature, he is the creator. And that battle cry one the day. Today, this morning, as we explore 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we will notice 
parallels to Athanasius's unwavering faith. We will learn from the Apostle Paul that we too are to be zealous. We too are to be faithful and we too are to be persistent in the age God has placed us. That we too must hold fast to the gospel even as contemporary deceptions and challenges rage around us. For those of you who take notes, here is the argument I'm going to try and persuade you of this morning. Hold fast to the gospel in the face of deception. Hold, amen. Hold, thanks, Les. Hold fast to the gospel in the face of deception. Now, there are Three qualities of gospel faithfulness that I would like us to see in our text this morning. The first quality of gospel faithfulness is jealous allegiance. And I'm going to want you to see it from verse 1 through to verse 6. Jealous allegiance for the gospel. The second quality of gospel faithfulness that I hope that we see clearly this morning from the text is be committed to proclamation of the gospel. And you will see that in verse 7 through 11 this morning. The third quality of gospel faithfulness is persistence despite opposition. Persistence despite opposition, and we'll see that in the verses that remain. That's verses 12 to 15. So now that you know what the main idea of the text is, hold fast to the plain gospel in the face of deception, and now you know how we're going to be stepping through the text. Let's read through 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. Remember the first point for these first six verses is jealous for allegiance. Hear what Paul says. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you. For I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve, by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from sincerity and purity to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. For I considered that I am not in at least inferior to those super apostles, but even if I am unskilled in speaking, Yet I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Second point coming up. Committed to proclamation from verse 7 to verse 11. Hear what Paul says. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you may be exalted because I preach God's gospel to you for free? 
are robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. And I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ was in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Archaea. And why? Because I do not love you, God knows I do. Here comes the third point. Persistent despite opposition from verse 12 to verse 15. And what I am doing I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Just so far in the reading of God's word. In this text, friends, there are three qualities of gospel faithfulness. And the first quality is this, jealous for allegiance. Read verse 1 again with me, would you not? I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed do bear with me for I feel a divine jealousy for you, a divine jealousy. What gets an authentic gospel preacher hot under the collar? What makes an authentic gospel preacher's blood boil? It's clear from my WhatsApp statuses from watching videos that are doing around that some popular South African preachers are triggered by South African politics. And it's also clear that other South African preachers are triggered by South African economics. Some are triggered by elections coming up. Some are triggered by the drought down in the Eastern Cape which has been broken, praise the Lord. Some are triggered by societal shift in our city. But whatever news cycle is presently doing the rounds and capturing the attention of their captured audience. But friends, real gospel preachers get up in arms when the gospel that they love or the converts they have won come under attack. That's what we see in verse one and two. They, verse one and two are filled with emotion. I feel a divine jealousy for you, Paul says. I'm fired up with a godly zeal. I've been triggered. Paul's divine jealousy here is a godly jealousy. Now the word jealousy translates the Greek word zealos, 
It's where we get the word zeal from. It's the idea of excitement, of ardor, of fervor. Paul stands ready to defend his message and those who have placed their faith in it and trusted in it. Paul, in verse 1, in the first half of verse 2, is fired up with godly zeal. Read the second half of verse 2 and following with me. For I betrothed, that's just a big word for married, I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from sincerity and purity to Christ. Paul is concerned about the state of marriage in Corinth. But not marriage to one another, but their covenantal relationship to Jesus Christ. There is an illusion in verse 2 to the, the marriage metaphor that we see all over the place in the Old Testament. God there is described as a husband to his people Israel. And the metaphor emphasizes God's love towards Israel and their required faithfulness toward him. In fact, if you had to read, for instance, the book of Hosea, you will find that Israel's idolatry in the Old Testament is pictured as her being unfaithful to God as she hoard after other gods. In the same way, yeah, in the text that is before us, Christ is described as the husband of the Corinthians. The, the metaphor emphasizes his love towards them and their required faithfulness toward him. The, the picture is that the Corinthians are being unfaithful to Christ as they haul after false teachers and their false teaching. Their marriage to Jesus is falling apart. And Paul's concern is about the state of the Corinthian soul. Not, not in a physical sense, but in an eternal sense. There's an allusion in verse 3 to the fall, to, to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 to 6, where the serpent deceived Eve, leading to rebellion against God, resulting in a physical death. In the same way in the text before us, this morning, false teachers with their false teaching are deceiving the Corinthian church, leading them to reject Jesus Christ, resulting in their eternal death. Their souls are in mortal danger. Can you see how false teachers and their false teaching can lead you astray? Paul is fired up with godly zeal because the Corinthians are rejecting Jesus. But there's a second reason in our text why Paul is fired up with this godly zeal. And it's because they are rejecting the truth as well. Now read verse four and following with me. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus other than the one we proclaim to you, or you receive a different spirit from the one that you received or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. 
Paul asks with a frown on his brow. Traveling teachers were very common in Jewish culture. In fact, if you go this afternoon and read the book of 2 John, you will discover that he wrote an entire letter to explain to the church how to receive good men, good teachers, good evangelists, good missionaries into their home, and how to reject bad teachers, bad evangelists, bad missionaries from their home. The warning here in verse 4 reminds us of the warning that Paul gave to the Galatian church in Galatians chapter 1, where where he said, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. A different Jesus a different spirit, a different gospel is no Jesus, no spirit, no gospel at all. Don't shift your allegiance, Paul is saying to the Corinthians. Don't reject scripture for tradition. Don't reject faithful works. Don't reject grace for the law. Don't reject Jesus for anyone else. Don't reject God's glory for your own. Paul is fired up with godly zeal because the Corinthians are rejecting the truth. There's a third reason why Paul is so fired up with zeal in this text and we read it in verse 5 and verse 6. Read along with me in your Bibles. For, that's a reason, uh, the, the, the answer is going to be clear, I consider that I'm not in the least inferior to these super apostles, but even if I am unskilled in speaking, yet not so in knowledge, indeed in every way we have made this plain, plain, to you in all things. In our day and age, it's weird, but it's true. We have to spend just a little bit of time explaining what an apostle is and what an apostle is not. The word apostle, yeah, simply means sent out one. Now the New Testament uses this word in two ways. The first way that the word apostle is used in the New Testament refers to the 12. The 12 apostles, the 12 disciples, held a unique position in church history. They saw the resurrected Jesus Christ. They witnessed him. They were chosen by his Holy Spirit. And signs and wonders authenticated their gospel ministry. Together with Paul, they laid the foundation of the church. There are no apostles like this today. None at all. There's people who call themselves apostles, but they're just lying. The second way that the word apostle is used in the New Testament refers to a general messenger of Jesus Christ. And this is used quite frequently in the New Testament. So for instance, Barnabas is called an apostle 
Andronicus is called an apostle. Junius is called an apostle. Titus is called an apostle. Epaphroditus is called an apostle in the New Testament. These apostles were really like modern day missionaries. They preached and they taught and they established churches. Yeah, in our text, Apostle is used in this secondary, general sense of the word. In verse 5, Paul is sarcastically described himself or compared himself to these super apostles, describing himself as a plain apostle. And this plain apostle that Paul describes himself as comes with a plain message to the Corinthians. Friends, Have you observed false teachers of our day adding to the gospel? Paul's message here is do not allow false teachers to lead you into false teaching, but remain faithful to the gospel, the plain gospel which you have heard, and in Paul's case, the gospel preacher that you have heard it from. Paul is fired up with godly zeal because the Corinthians are rejecting him. They are rejecting truth. They are rejecting Jesus Christ. Now in this text, there are three qualities of gospel faithfulness. The first quality is this. Gospel faithfulness means jealous for allegiance. The second quality is this. Gospel faithfulness means that Paul was committed to proclamation. Committed to proclamation. And you can read about that from verse 7 to verse 10. Uh, Read along with me in your Bibles, beginning at verse 7. Paul says, Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and I was in need, I did not burden anyone for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. And I refrained and I will refrain from burdening you in any way. Paul's teaching was different. We covered that in verse one to six. But Paul's modus operandi was different too. And we discover that from verse seven to 11. The way that Paul went about doing ministry was different to the way that these super apostles went about doing ministry in his day and age. The New Testament talks a lot about false teachers. The New Testament describes false teachers as hirelings. The New Testament says that false teachers are in it for gain. The New Testament says that false teachers are greedy, but not Paul. He raised his support from other churches. And where necessary, we know from Scripture that he worked with his own hands to provide for his own needs. Does this differ to what we see in the church today. Friends, on any given Sunday, in synagogues of Satan all around Pretoria, so-called apostles in silk suits and shiny shoes fleece the sheep 
that they are supposed to shepherd. Every time a snake oil salesman says, sow and reap, or calls for a seed offering, or a divine exchange, they out themselves as hidden reeves at your love feasts, who feast on you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by strong winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Paul's proclamation to the Corinthians came at other people's expense. Verse 10. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in all the regions of Archaea. Earlier on, I asked the question, well, what gets an authentic preacher hot under the collar? Now I'm asking the question, what inspires an authentic gospel preacher? Well, what excites an authentic gospel preacher? And the answer is kingdom advancement, kingdom gain. The Lord had said to Paul that he was his chosen instrument to carry his name to the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Carrying the name of Christ to the Gentiles was Paul's overwhelming concern. And he had done this. He had first declared the gospel message in Damascus, and then he had declared the gospel message in Jerusalem, and then he had declared the gospel message throughout Judea, and then he had declared the gospel message also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God and perform deeds in keeping with their repentance. Paul could not be silenced. Paul would not be silenced, not in Corinth, not in Archaea, not in all the world, because the gospel must advance. The gospel will advance. If it took the collective sacrifice of all the churches, that was okay. If it took everything that Paul had to give, the sacrifice was okay because Paul was committed to the proclamation of Christ and him crucified, committed to church and kingdom advancement. Because proclamation of the gospel is worth the sacrifice. Verse 11. And why, Paul asks. Because I do not love you? Well, God knows I do. What motivates evangelism? What fuels the kind of sacrifice that it will take you to share the gospel with your family, with your friends, and with your co-workers? What drives gospel preachers and what drives gospel-saturated people like you? The answer is love. Love for God and love for the lost. Love for God first. Love for God motivates evangelism. Work forward through a couple of passages of Scripture with me. The first is 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. God is love. God is love. 
The second scripture is Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 to 39. Jesus said, you'll know this text well. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. The third passage is this, John chapter 14, verse 15. And Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. The next passage is Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Jesus commanded his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And the last passage is Luke chapter 24, verse 47. That repentance is for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Now that was working forward, starting with God is love and then we shall love the Lord our God with all our hearts. This is the first commandment. And then, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then the commandment to go to all the nations, making disciples. And lastly, uh, pro- uh, proclaiming his name to all nations. Now work backwards through this. Evangelism is a command. Evangelism is a command which we are to obey. Evangelism is a command which we are to obey because we love God. Evangelism is a command which we are to obey because we love God and God is love. Friends, if you want to grow in evangelism, you must grow in your love for God because a love for God motivates evangelism. But it's not the only motivation for evangelism. Love for the lost also motivates evangelism. Mike Riccardi um, wrote an article called The Motivation of Evangelism. And I quote him here. He says that after saying that love for God is the foremost commandment, Jesus proceeded and said the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor even as you love yourself. True believers, friends, are characterized by sacrificial love. This love will selflessly and compassionately proclaim the news that Christ laid down his life on behalf of sinners. Speaking of the command to love your neighbor as yourself, Pastor Mark Dever offers a helpful explanation. What does such love require of us? What does such love require? require of you it seems to require that what we want for ourselves we want for those that we love too if you desire to love God with perfect affection you will desire that your neighbor does too but you are not loving your neighbor as yourself if you're not trying to persuade him toward the greatest and best aspect of your own life your reconciled relationship with God. If you are a Christian, you are pursuing Christ. You are following him and you desire him. And you must therefore also desire this highest good for everyone whom you love. It is love itself that requires us to pursue the best for those we love that we might include sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with them. Love gives 
what is best. And Christ is what is best for everyone. Are you concerned about your personal lack of motivation, commitment to evangelistic zeal? The answer isn't to whip yourself into action. The answer is Jesus. Love him more and you will be compelled to share the gospel with family and friends and co-workers because you love them too. Love compelled Paul to proclaim the gospel. Now in this text, there are three qualities to gospel faithfulness. The first was jealous for allegiance. The second was committed to proclamation. Now the third is persistent despite opposition. Persistent despite opposition. Read verse 12 together with me. And what am I doing? I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim that those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. False teachers and their followers are zealous. They won't stop. Think of Jehovah Witnesses setting up little book stands on street corners. Think of Mormons walking around your suburb knocking on doors. Think of the way that the New Apostolic Reformation proselytes chase after their apostles, chase after their prophets, chase after their healing. Think of the way that crazy charismatics eat snakes and grass. False teachers and their followers are zealous and they won't stop. False teachers are zealous, and the question is, is zealousness then a bad thing? Well, obviously not, because Paul has just told us that he's jealous for you. So if zealous isn't always a bad thing, what does bad jealousy look like? Zeal is bad when zeal is blind. A zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, is a bad thing. Zeal is bad when zeal is self-seeking. Religion as a means for gain is bad. Zeal is bad when zeal is misguided, when zeal pursues disputable matters and traditions rather than obedience. That is bad. Zeal is bad when zeal is impulsive, inspired by impulsive reaction rather than thoughtful conviction. The false teachers were zealous in a bad way. But Paul was zealous too. In fact, Paul would not be outzealed by the false teachers. And so if zeal is bad when zeal is blind, then Paul would promote knowledgeable zeal. Not based on ignorance, but a deep understanding of the truth. If zeal is bad... When zeal is self-seeking, then, then Paul would promote a God-seeking zeal. Zeal which cannot bear to see God's reputation harmed or his honor stolen by another. If zeal is bad when zeal is misguided, then Paul will promote an obedient zeal. Zeal which boils over with holy affection for God and for man. 
If zeal is bad, when zeal is impulsive, then Paul will promote a persistent zeal. Zeal which cannot be quenched, no matter what winds blow against it or what water is poured over it. A fearless zeal, spiritually strengthened in the face of opposition and resistant to discouragement. A passionate zeal, standing for truth, even when truth is despised or opposed. Paul won't stop because the false teachers won't stop. Verse 13. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Verse 14 draws on Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28. There Satan is described as the day star. Satan is described as the sun of the dawn, as the perfect signet, as full of wisdom and beautiful and perfect in beauty, as having every single precious stone in his covering. Now, just as Satan disguises himself as an angel of light in the Old Testament, the false teachers and prophets today disguise themselves as messengers of Christ. They look like us, they sound like us, but don't be fooled, they are not us. Jude writes of them, they are hidden reefs. False teachers are dangerous. Bring your ship too close to them and you will run aground. they shepherds feeding themselves. Shepherds are supposed to care for their sheep. These men eat their sheep. They are waterless clouds swept along by wind. South Africa is in the problem that the South African church is in the problem that the South African church is in because South African Christendom has run after men of gods who are nothing else other than charlatans and snake oil salesmen. They promise spiritual enrichment but they are spiritually bankrupt and can deliver nothing. They are fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. In autumn, nothing's on the tree. It's just a, a bag of branches. But this is not just a bag of branches, autumn tree. It's a bag of branches, autumn tree that is dead. And it's not just a bag of branches, autumn tree that is dead. It's a bag of branches, autumn tree that is dead and has been uprooted. This is going nowhere. These false teachers are beyond rescue. They're like wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. These false teachers are dirty. If you've ever been to Port Elizabeth, Klaibecha, you've seen the big waves and lots of wind crashing down onto the coast. And what's left after they retract? A murky, grimy, disgusting foam is left. That's it. These men make a lot of noise like the crashing of waves but they only produce an ugly foam that washes up along the shoreline. Their many words only produce sin and guilt and shame. Just like their father, the devil, these false teachers are deceitful. The end of verse 15. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Herein lies a great warning. These men are like wandering stars in the sky for whom utter gloom and utter darkness has been reserved forever. Uh, the false teachers are doomed. Uh, stars in the sky are supposed to act like guide lights uh, for shepherds and for sailors. But these guys don't lead anyone anywhere that they want to go. 
They're like wandering comets that fizzle out and take the people that are following them into the darkness of forever. The terrifying reality is that whilst these men will be consigned to a separation from God, they will take the countless number of people that are following with them into hell forever and ever. These false teachers will be judged just like Satan. This text had three qualities of gospel faithfulness. The first quality was jealous for allegiance. The second quality was committed to proclamation. The third quality was persistent despite opposition. How do we as a church go about applying this today? Well, brothers and sisters, Paul gives us a wonderful example in himself that we can follow in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Even as he was jealous for allegiance, even as he was committed to proclamation, even as he was persistent despite opposition, so we should be too. How can you be jealous for allegiance? Well, friend, don't waver in your faith. And evaluate the sermons and the preaching that you're exposed to, the teachings that your family is exposed to, the kinds of sermons that you listen to that you download from online, the kinds of books that you read from your local bookstore. How can you be committed to proclamation? Well, in Arcadia, that's relatively easy. Join EE3. EE3 is our evangelism training class, which is designed to help you to learn how to share your faith with people and give you practical opportunities to do that. So just before the service this morning, I sent to the campus WhatsApp group for Arcadia uh, a, a PDF, and in it there's a link that allows you to click on a form and fill in your details, and it'll get to Patrick, and you can sign up for the next time that we run an EE3 class. How can you persist despite opposition? Can I encourage you to study the accounts of biblical figures who faced opposition and remained steadfast in their faith? And furthermore to that, can I encourage you to read the history of men through the ages, whether it be men like Athanasius or men like Martin Luther, who stood firm in their age for the faith that they held onto so tightly? Now, one of the ways that you can do that is by reading short biographies. In that uh, PDF, which I sent to the campus WhatsApp group this morning, there's a link to a series written by John Piper of short biographies of saints from yesteryear. It is well worth the read. Unbeliever that is here today. And I know that you're there because in a group this size, they couldn't help but being some people that were maybe dragged to church or some people that came to church out of curiosity. How does this text apply to you? Friends, Paul spoke of his plain proclamation. The plain gospel message is that Christ died for your sins and that he rose again in victory from the grave and it is a call on you to believe in him for salvation. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11 from verse 1 to 6, Paul exhorts the Corinthians to remain faithful to the gospel. Well, that rests in an understanding of what the gospel is. We discover what the gospel is by reading another portion in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 from verse 1 to 4. 
There Paul writes, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold on to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Friends, the gospel message is the foundation of salvation. Provided you hold fast to it. Well, what are you to hold fast to? Here is the gospel message in Paul's own words. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The core elements of the gospel are plain to see. Jesus died for your sins. Jesus rose in victory from the grave. You are to repent this day and believe that you might be spared from the wrath that is to come. Here's a short conclusion. Today, in this very church, we stand on the shoulders of giants like Athanasius. His resolute defense of the Nicene Creed and the divinity of Christ ensured that the gospel message remained pure and unadulterated. Athanasius' legacy reminds us that in the face of deception, we must hold fast to the core truths of the faith. As we navigate in a world which is filled with deceptions and distractions, let us, like Athanasius, be zealous for allegiance to Christ, committed to the proclamation of the true gospel, and persistent despite the opposition that we will face. Just as Athanasius's unwavering faith reshaped the course of Christian history, so too can our fidelity to the gospel impact our generation for the glory of God. Hold fast to the gospel in the face of deception. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father God, to hold fast to the gospel message as it has been delivered to us. That in holding fast to it, Lord God, we would receive great assurance of our salvation and that we would stand as a witness to those whom we love, our family, our friends, our co-workers. That, Lord God, we would be quick to speak of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, even in an age filled with deception, filled with cunning, filled with agents of darkness masquerading as angels of light. Would you be glorified in and through your church, we pray. All these things in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. Find out more about Central Baptist Church at www.central.org.za.